Uh, uh, thanks, John. Hi, everybody. My name is Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> My God, you're a rowdy group. You know that? <laughs> Jeez, I, I spoke down here about uh, six months ago at an anniversary meeting, and I'd forgotten how crazy you people down here. It's wonderful to come here because no one here, obviously, has worked the second step, and I'm the same way. So it's, um, you know, so it's, it's great to be here. It kind of reminds me of being in California. Uh, and uh, I hope I've offended no one by saying my last name, uh, but Tom B. spells tomb. And, uh, you know, I've had a slow recovery, but hell, it hasn't been that bad, you know. So, uh, but, you know, but in California, it's the same type of thing in California. Uh, and I'm sorry I missed Clancy uh, last night. I was out in California, lived out there some of the times when uh, Clancy was out there. And uh, I'm sorry that I didn't get a chance to, uh, uh, to hear him last night. Uh, but California is a little funny about uh, anonymity. Um, uh, some people are so anonymous that God doesn't know that they're in the program. You know? And, uh, you know, uh, and it's in, I just don't understand when you're looking for help how you can find Tom B. in the phone book and, uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. But they have the same type of meeting that they have uh, here. There's a lot of enthusiasm. They read Chapter 5 uh, up to the 12 steps, uh, up to the ABCs, and they read uh, Chapter 3 more about alcoholism. Uh, up to the ad infinitum. It's a, it's a volatile, crazy group. If you go to the men's room, you get a standing ovation. You know, it's one of the, these, these people are so... Uh, in a certain way, I'm, uh, I'm glad to be back. It doesn't bother me at all uh, to have asked to come and speak for um, Mr. P uh, Peter Waters, I guess, is the... Uh, I may as well break his anonymity while I'm breaking everyone else's. You know? So, you know... Uh, uh, this, hap this happened to me about 15 years ago. I was asked to speak at a conference and take the place of a priest who couldn't get there. Uh, my credentials were at that time that I had a black suit and a hell of a load of guilt, and uh, so that worked all right. And my credentials now are, as I can say, a boot and A. So, uh, you know, it was great being here, eh? So, <laughs> well, I think we've probably got you in a fit spiritual condition, and uh, uh, with that, oh, I would, I would make this observation, too, that when I drove... When I drove down here and saw that you were meeting at the Ramada, and I used to come here in Columbus uh, on business, but I was telling John I've never been out here at the Ramada. This is really a, this is really a nice place and a nice neighborhood, a little bit different than the church basements that, uh, that I'm accustomed to going into. When I first came into AA and saw that we've got the numbers and nobody has to count, that was 29 years ago. And uh, uh, when I first came into AA, I thought that I was going to spend all of my life uh, meeting in church basements, and I don't think it was the basement part that uh, got me, but it was the church, uh, the fact that uh, the association with the church, because my, uh, my first 12 years of, pub of education was, was a parochial education with Dominican nuns. Uh, I don't know whether any of you had those Dominican nuns, but uh, you know, if, if there had been just two companies of Dominican nuns, with those 18-inch rulers that they carried around, they could have shortened World War II by two years at least. You know, they, these these gals were incredible. They, they they would talk love while they were beating the hell out of you. You know, and I I still recall this. If I see a Dominican nun walking down the street today, my knuckles will start to bleed spontaneously. It's, it's, you know, it's almost like a stigmata. You know, it's a it's a it's a spiritual experience, if you will. But uh, in retrospect, and when you get to be my age, about everything's in retrospect, unfortunately, but uh, in, in retrospect, I no longer believe everything that those nuns taught me. I have not yet gone blind. <laughs> I knew, I knew there'd be some more of you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I will tell you this, though. It's an honest program. 
I'm putting drops every morning in my left eye, and they don't ask me to read a hell of a lot of my home group, so, uh, you know, I don't know about that. Well, I think we ought to get, uh, get someplace here relevant to why, why we're supposed to be here, I guess. At the, um, at the first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, that I attended uh, around 30 years ago, it, it is now, in Cahoga Falls, Ohio, which is a, which is a northern suburb of uh, Akron, Ohio, uh, it would be nice for me to stand here and tell you that I heard something that was so majestic and so profound that it changed my life forever and that I, uh, I arose from there like the phoenix uh, from the ashes, I turned my life around and lived happily ever after and so on and so forth, but that is not uh, what happened. However, I did hear something uh, that, was, uh, that was rather remarkable and that gave me pause and stopped me for a little bit and made me at least reconsider where I was, and I, and I was thinking when Beth came up and, uh, and read the 12 steps, you know, Beth, that's amazing, uh, two days of sobriety, two or three days of sobriety, and your willingness to come forward and stand and read those, I think that's just absolutely incredible, and at, uh, at two days of sobriety, I, I would not have been able to do that. I would not have been able to do it, and I wouldn't have done it, uh, with the resentment and, and the cynicism that I get. I would have simply refused to do it. So. God bless you, and thanks for coming forward. That, that, was, a, that was a very important thing. I, I, most people who lead a meeting or speak at a meeting will say they don't remember very much about the first meeting. I don't remember very much about my first meeting. Why should I be different than anything else? I remember just two things. One, that there was a very articulate, poised black man that led the meeting. Uh, he's dead many years now. His name was John Tolliver, and I think when John led the meeting, uh, he probably had at that time maybe 10 years of sobriety, which seemed to me to be uh, ageless. I mean, no one could possibly even consider 10 years of sobriety. I mean, how could you be relevant? Or how could you even... I remember that. I remember that they put me right down in the front row. And it appeared to me, and most things that appeared to me are perception disorders. Part of my alcoholism is as a perception disorder. But it appeared to me that uh, John was talking... Bill Tolliver was talking to me, talking directly uh, to me. And then when the meeting was over, uh, a kind of magical thing happened, I think. Uh, my, wife was, my wife was with me at the meeting, and it seems to me that there was a veritable, veritable parade of people who came forward. Uh, and all they wanted to do, apparently, was to shake our hands and to wish us well. And I'm sure each one of them laid a little AA slogan or bromide or good luck or something upon us, none of which I retained. But there was one person who came up, I don't know, man or woman, because you can see I'm not, very, I'm not very careful about anonymity. I'm about as anonymous as a pregnant woman in a nudist colony. And, um, and so I would break, I would break the anonymity if, if, if I knew it was a man or woman. But this person, this person came forward and took my hand and shook hands and said, Tom, you will probably not remember very much that was said at this meeting tonight. Complete agreement. However, if you, could, if you could take one thing, if you could retain one thing, if you could leave here with one thing, I would respectfully suggest that you might consider that you're not a bad person trying to become good, but that you're a desperately ill person trying to become well. And then maybe it was the verb tense. I don't know why I would retain that, because the individual said, if you be alcoholic, if you be alcoholic, then you're suffering from an allergy or the body coupled with an obsession in the mind resulting in complete spiritual deterioration. I, I, I don't, didn't understand that. I didn't understand the ramifications of any of that. 
but certainly I knew how I felt, and certainly I knew that, that, I, that, that there was complete spiritual deterioration. I knew certainly that my life was over. I, I knew that, that even if I were to consider not living or living some period of time without alcohol, that as a consequence of that, my life would really be over. I would never laugh. I would never have any, I'd never have any abilities. And, and, and everything that, that, that I was uh, was going to be over. I also knew with a certainty that, that if you rolled back a rock, the slimiest crawling thing that you found under that, lo- that rock had more, had more moral value than I had because I knew that I was a moral leper. I knew without any question that I was a moral leper. And to just hear advanced that there might be another approach to this thing, that maybe maybe some of the things that happened to me were not, were not completely of my own volition, that, of my own culpability, that maybe there was something else, that maybe I did suffer from some type of a disease, an allergy of the body, an obsession of the mind, and it was at least a refreshing thought. I don't know whether I, don't know whether I took hope out of that. I don't know what I took out of that, but it was a different approach. And, uh, and we left there, loaded down, as the new person always does, with uh, all types of AA para- paraphernalia. I had a big book, and I had a 24-hour book, and I had pamphlets, and I had all this kind of stuff. And my wife was smiling serenely. Uh, it had been a long time since she'd been smiling serenely or smiling any way at all. Uh, just to put that in context for you, I've been chasing that same brunette around uh, for 46 years. Uh, we have seven children, uh, four boys and three girls. I was compulsive in a number of areas besides the ingestion of alcohol. And uh, so I came home with all this literature, literature and this child bride of mine. And uh, as we began to talk about this thing, I said to her one day as I was uh, critiquing and correcting all the mistakes in the big book, I said, uh, I said uh, Giggles, uh, you know, you've been with me longer than anyone else. Uh, and that was sort of an interesting approach that those AAs laid upon us, uh, isn't it? The fact that, you know, that I may be suffering from some type of a disease here, that, that there, there, there's something different physically and mentally about me. Now, you've been with me all these years. Do you think I've always had that disease? And without a moment's hesitation, uh, she, looked at, she looked at me and said, well, if you haven't had the disease, you've sure as hell been a carrier. <laughs> She was to. Uh, she was obviously preparing herself for a position in Al-Anon, which would begin uh, very, very soon. The, the relevance in all of that, I think, is that it was an absurd question as far as she was concerned. That that, that, that my behavior was so incomprehensible, so strange, so bizarre. The only one that couldn't see that was me. When I when I first was exposed to the steps and had to look at the steps, and, and all of you have had to do that. Beth is looking at the steps now. She read them today good for us to hear them being read again and to think, where are we uh, given a, a specific step? And we look at those steps. I think some of them bother us more than others, at least for me, some of them bothered me more than others. Some seem more difficult than others. Some seem more illogical than others. And uh, it's been sort of a, an avocation of mine, if you will, to talk to people in the program and ask them uh, when they came in the program which steps bothered them the most. And what I hear the most often is number four, made a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another person uh, the exact nature of our wrongs. And certainly those were steps that I didn't like either. But the one that bothered me the most was two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore me to, to uh, sanity. Because if I must be restored to sanity, then vis-a-vis someplace along the line, I, I'm insane. And I would not accept 
could not accept that I was alcoholically or clinically insane. Uh, fortunately, over a period of time, my inventories hopefully have become a bit more fearless and more. I've had the, the ability to sit in these rooms for a long time, and it's been some time now that when I look at what Bill Wilson wrote in that second step for Tom Baldwin, I don't know what he wrote for you, but my insanity, virulent as it was, and virulent as it can be, my insanity was the total inability or total unwillingness to see the truth about myself. I've never been able to stand and look at a mirror and get a true image of who I was and what I was supposed to be. Apparently, some people can do this. The earth people, maybe, maybe some alcoholics can do that uh, without problem. I doubt it, though. I doubt if that, if that inability or unwillingness to see the truth about myself is endemic just to me. I think it's probably a hallmark of alcoholism, the disease of denial, if you will. Uh, in, my, in my labors of correcting all those mistakes in the big books, see, I, do, I don't listen real well. Uh, when my sponsor told me to read the big book, that's not what I heard. Uh, I heard that I was to critique it, correct it, and then go to meetings and laboriously insult everyone around me about all the mistakes in that uh, in, in the big book. And I did that for a period of close to two years, uh, if you can if you can believe that. But one of one of the one of the ways that I rationalized that um, uh, that Wilson uh, must have failed a saliva test when he wrote when he when he wrote the book was that was his story of the compulsive jaywalker. Do you remember the story of the compulsive jaywalker? That turkey walked in front of everything, you know? I mean, he'd walk in front of a, he'd be in the hospital and have his leg in a sling, and he'd get out of there and he'd on the runway and a plane would hit him. And then he would hit by, I don't know what the hell he got hit by, a snowblower and he got hit. I mean, this guy was an accident looking for a place to happen, you know? And over and over again, and I said, geez, who the hell in their right mind? <laughs> You're ahead of me, you know that? <laughs> that is the disclaimer, isn't it? There is a second step. Who in his right mind? And as my inventories have become hopefully a little bit more fearless, searching, and moral, I recognize now that the hallmark of my alcoholism is the fact that I've reached down and always tried to pick up that same snake. I've just reached down and tried to pet that same snake. And sometimes I look at that and the inability or unwillingness to see the truth about myself is so great that I look at that and I absolutely, I said, that isn't a snake. What's wrong with you? It's a stick. It's a stick. A little bit later, I'll look at that and I'll say, no, that's a snake. I mean, uh, you've got half sense in one eye, you can see that that's a snake, but it's not a poisonous snake. <laughs> and then when my ego is at its zenith, which is most of the time, I look at that and say, what's wrong with you? You know, you've you got to be nuts. That's a snake. That's a poisonous snake. No question about that. Look at that. Hear the rattle? That's a poisonous snake, but it won't bite me. <laughs> not today. Total inability, total unwillingness to see the truth about itself. In the back of this big book that I critiqued for so long, there's an admonition from the famous uh, psychologist of the 1920s and 1930s, Herbert Spencer, warning us about contempt prior to investigation. My sponsor pointed to that on many occasions. Uh, he would hold a flashlight on it necess necessary in the car and pointed at that. And I think what he was saying to me is that it might be a good idea if I kept my mouth shut kept my ears open, and it began to accept the fact that there might be a way of doing things other than the way that I had been doing things, that my way of been doing things uh, was what really qualified me to meet in church basements. And maybe I ought to be able to look at some other... And, and I'm sure that's exactly what Pete meant at the time when he said that. And to some degree, I was willing to accept that and began to do that over the years. And I do that better today than I did then. I don't do it as well as I should do it, but better than then. However, you know, because I'm alcoholic things are full on or full off. 
I, I don't know. There's, the whole world can live in the gray area, not me. I got to live in the black borders. I am either eating four pounds of chocolate per day or I'm on a starvation diet where I won't even ingest water. Water is fattening. I am either indolent to the point that my wife will hold a mirror in front of to see if there's even breath coming out of that body, or I'm trying, or I'm preparing for a marathon at age 68. I mean, there's 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 no there's no balance uh, uh, in that thing at all. And so, because I'm alcoholic, and because Alcoholics Anonymous has saved my life, because my life for the past 29 years has been has been my life is in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, it's permitted me to do all kinds of other things, thank God. And it will continue. It will allow me to do every kinds of things, thank God. But if I remember that the root cause and the root solution is here in Alcoholics Anonymous, because those other things that are attractive to me out there, that are business activities and church activities and fraternal activities, they're all good in themselves, but they were all there when I couldn't get sober. When my life was totally out of control, those things were there. And they're the, and they're there. And the, and the drinking is there for me again if I, if I forget the primacy of Alcoholics Anonymous that I must start it. But because Alcoholics Anonymous has done so much for me, so much for my family, I've gone full circle and I have a tendency to reject ideas and disciplines that don't emanate from Alcoholics Anonymous. I've become, I've, I've become, uh, I've become a fanatic to a degree. About saying, that's not, I didn't read that in 164 pages. That's not in As Bill Sees It. That's not on the New York approved list. Now, Bill never said that. And, and Alcoholics Anonymous has never taken such a position. That's my own eccentricity, my own demands of perfection that, uh, that, that put me in that spot. And, and as, as a consequence, I reject some things. There's no bad way of getting sober. There's no bad way of finding God. There's no bad way of having our lives turned around and our families restored and all those kinds of things. But because it happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous, and because my life is here, I have a tendency to reject those other things. I have a perception disorder. I continue to have a perception disorder. And my perception disorder tells me that I cannot open a newspaper, read a magazine, turn on the television or turn on the radio without hearing an advertisement for a treatment center. Now, that's an outside issue, so I have no opinion on that. And as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm not entitled to have an opinion on that. And as a matter of fact, I don't have an opinion on that. Okay? But in, in the area that I live, in North Canton, Ohio, it seemed to me as a perception disorder several years ago that I was constantly hearing this advertisement for a treatment center. And the woman making the, this pitch had this lovely, sweet, sultry, sexy voice I was considering drinking four or five gallons or something and going in there and seeing what the hell she looked like, you know, but, because she would always end it with Glen Bay, Glen Bay. And, it's in, and as a part of listening to that, and I probably listened to it only because of the tone of the voice, not because of what was being said, but what I heard said is that they gave a description of alcoholism or an alcoholic. And the description was an alcoholic is a person who will do essentially anything in his or her own life to avoid the basic kinds of social intercourse that takes place among people. Let me repeat that. An alcoholic is an individual who will do essentially anything in his or her life to avoid the basic kinds of social intercourse that takes place among people. And I became angry. 
I said, that's not in 164 pages. I haven't read there any place. Bill didn't write that. Dr. Bob didn't write that. Uh, it's a, a nothing that I read. I haven't heard at a meeting and so on and so forth. But, you know, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking. That tape kept playing over and over and over in my head. And finally, I had to say, right on. That's exactly right. Isn't that exactly what you've been saying for some years? The total inability or unwillingness to see the truth about yourself. That you don't know how to handle the basic kinds of social situations. How, how do you accept a gift? How do you say thank you? What's it mean to be an employee? What's it mean to be a husband? What's it mean to take an active, dues-paying, card-carrying role in society? Uh, what, what's my responsibility? Where does my responsibility end? What's it mean to be a father? So on and so forth. So, now some people apparently know how to do that just naturally. Uh, as a consequence of having all these children, I've attended a number of commencement exercises. And I remember one in particular for one of my daughters, high school uh, graduation. And there was a young lady that stood at a podium something like this. And the auditorium was filled with her peer group, her classmates, her relatives, her, the fathers and mothers, the grandfathers, cousins, uncles, so on and so forth, the faculty, and so on and so forth. I can see this, I can see this young lady to this day that's riveted in my mind permanently, hauntingly lovely as she approached the podium with a great deal of poise and a great deal of confidence. And she looked out, put a smile on her face, and she said, we affirm ourselves by affirming others. I said, how the hell does she know that? How the hell does she know that? That's not what I do. I affirm myself by affirming myself. I affirm myself by criticizing others. I affirm myself by comparing myself favorably to others. I believe in sharing. I totally believe in sharing. 10% for me, 90% for you. That's sharing. Okay? I don't want to be along to an organization that I'm not the president of. And then when I look at that, I wouldn't work for a company like that. Okay? Total inability, total unwilling to see the truth about myself. It is fashionable today, and again, I have no opinion on this because it's somewhat of an outside issue, I guess. Uh, come to think of it, about everything's an outside issue, isn't it? Yeah. So I have no opinion on this, but it seems to me fashionable today for many people to say, I came from a dysfunctional environment. Okay? I don't know whether I came from a dysfunctional environment. I don't know whether, um, uh, whether my father, who was uh, dead of a massive coronary at age 47, uh, who drank uh, something between a fifth and a half and two-fifths of booze a day and smoked about three and a half packs of cigarettes, camel cigarettes, uh, and I was telling somebody who would not walk from here to the coffee machine if there was a bus or a trolley or something going to that. I don't know whether, you know, whether he, he was involved in, uh, whether he was an alcoholic or, or whether booze was a problem. I don't know whether my mother got tired of chasing him and decided to join him and uh, drank everything that would go through a four-inch pipe and got on to, um, got on to a number of other uh, uh, pills and so on and so on. I don't know whether that was the, uh, was the case or not. I know this, that I have one blood brother just one blood brother, 18 months my junior, and uh, he's a little too heavy, and at times he drinks a little bit too much, and I suppose at times he smokes a little bit too much, and so on and so forth, but he didn't have the crazy, bizarre, insane things happen to him that, that, that I had. He didn't have those incredible mood swings. He didn't have that destructive temper, that the unreasonable fear and guilt and shame and remorse and humiliation that afflicted me over this, uh, over this uh, period of time. I, I know rather this, when we talk about something being dysfunctional, that there's a flip side to that. And I know this, 
that as a young person growing up, I had a lot of advantages. As I look back on it and my inventories become a bit honest, I had a lot of advantages. I think I had dreams like every other young person. Some of those dreams, some of those dreams were good. Some of those dreams were altruistic. I think there was a time uh, when I felt that my life could count for something and, and that I wanted my life to count for something and that I wanted to be of service to other people. There was a time when I wasn't so innately selfish that I became more hateful or cynical that I became later. There were a time, and I know that I literally or figuratively sat at the knees of, of people who loved me and cared for me and who tried to instruct me in what was right and what was wrong and offered me some dreams and offered me some hopes and so on and so forth. I simply wasn't able to accept that. And when I began to drink, and I didn't take a drink until I was probably 19 years old, whether that was some influence of what was happening in the family, I don't know. I don't know. It was not terribly fashionable when I was uh, in my teens for, for people to be doing a great deal of drinking. I was at a parochial high school, and there was some drinking going on. Uh, it, may be, it may be a coincidence. It may be a coincidence. Uh, I'm, going to be the, uh, I'm going to be the guest speaker this July at our high school 50th reunion. My sixth, my six best friends in high school are dead of the disease of alcoholism. All six. And why did God spare me to be here on a Sunday morning in Columbus, Ohio? I don't know. I know the answer to that. But I do know that when I began to drink, as a product of beginning to drink, there was an erosion of values and there was erosion of those dreams. And those things that I wanted to become and the benefit that I wanted to be and the things that were important to me began to change. I couldn't see that because of the total inability or unwillingness to see the truth about myself. One of the grand things about alcoholism as a disease, and it is a disease, it's recognized by the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, as a disease, there's no question. You'll get a little debate from anyone about being in a disease. But it's an interesting disease, isn't it? Because it's a disease where the patient has to make his or her own diagnosis and the nature of the disease is the total inability or unwillingness to see the truth about ourselves. And I submit that's a catch-22. We who are blind have to make that diagnosis. You can't be checked in and have a little litmus test run and they, get, they take a little sample of urine or take and say, you're in, you're out, we don't know about you, drink a fifth and come back in two weeks. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. We have to make that own decision. And with the total inability or total unwillingness to see the truth about ourselves, it's impossible. And so those things that were happening to me, I didn't see the effects of the disease. I, I wasn't willing to accept. And, of course, I would never be responsible for my behavior anyway. Because if something worked very well, I took 100% credit for it. And if it failed even slightly, I was very democratic in how I could blame. <laughs> blame everybody in the room. Blame everybody in the place. Total inability, total unwillingness to see the truth about myself. I worked 38 and a half years for one company. Retired from that company in, in 1990, and uh, I've been working ever since. I'm still, I'll be 68 years old, and I'm compulsive in a number of areas. I'm still working. Can you believe that? Uh, someone said I'm flying to Europe tomorrow, and uh, uh, when I get over there, see, because I'm someplace between male menopause and senility, I can't remember why the hell I'm going. But uh, <laughs> I'm kind of like a duck. I wake up to a new world every day, you know. <clears throat> but in that 38 and a half years of working for that one company, uh, they, had a, they had a very, it was a very large company, they had a personnel department. And my personnel file, and thank God, thank God, 
I was sober most of those years uh, working for that company. But prior to that, my personnel file said, he is an enigma, which, which means, who is, who is this person? Who is this person? Who is this person who can start things? who seems to be enthused about things and get things organized and gets things moving forward and brings some ideas and so on and so forth. And just about the time we put some trust in him and believe that something's going to happen, he goes absolutely nuts. He disappears. He, cha- he changes the game plan. He's, you know, who is this person? And I would have, and, and, you know, if, if I had any honesty, if I knew anything, I would have said, oh, my God, yes, who, who am I? Can somebody tell me who am I? What's happening to me? What in the name of God is happening to me? I don't understand this. I'm going places. I said I'd never go. I'm with people I'd never said I'd be with. Things that are happening to me. But see, that disease that, that prevents the alcoholic from seeing the truth about himself permits you to be, have 20-20 vision about identifying all the other alcoholics in your life. <laughs> Works great. I can get on a 747 and spot an alcoholic and row 93 in the back of the plane. So what I did, whenever the cause and effect was great enough that I had to take some responsibility and say, God, there must be some relationship here between drinking and what's happening to me. I'd say, yeah, but I don't drink like he does. When I drink like him, I'm going to do something about it. And when I got like him, I said, when I drink like her, I'm going to do something about it. When I got her, and then a him, and then a her, and then a him, and then both a him and a her. When I get like them, I'll do something about it. And without the intervention of a loving God with whom I had no type of intercourse without that intervention. I would have simply died. And I would have never even gotten the license number of the truck who ran over me. Total inability, unwilling to say the truth about ourselves. Must be true. Why do, why do we repeat over and over and over those same mistakes over and over and over? Hurt those people. Do those things. Fail so many people disappoint so many people over and over again. Total inability, total unwillingness to see the truth about myself. This erosion took place. It continued to take place. Our big book says cunning, baffling, and powerful, doesn't it? When Bill describes alcoholism, he calls, he calls it cunning, alcoholic. He calls it cunning, baffling, powerful. It is. I add two other things. Insidious and patient. Insidious. Isn't going to go away. And it'll wait for you. It waited for me. It waited for me. At times, I thought I was making a little progress. At times, my denial, I dealt with denial by saying, I won't drink for some period of time, such as Lent. Forty long, miserable, damn days of Lent. I was the most, now, Lent is supposed to be a spiritual time. If hating everyone around you, if being the biggest pain in the tush possible for 40 days is spiritual, because all I thought about was drinking, I could never think about processing anything and dealing with anything and moving forward. I could, I could deal with abstinence. I could go without drinking, but my mind, I could never rid my mind of that disease. And of course, what would happen on Holy Saturday by noon, I'd be bombed out of my tree, missed Easter, and missed four or five days of work afterwards. Totally, but I didn't see that. What I saw is I didn't drink for 40 days. Therefore, I can't be an alcoholic, so get off my case, Giggles. 
I don't want to hear anything about this. Go look at him. Go look at her. Total inability, total unwillingness to see the truth about myself. But even during that period, the erosion continued, the erosion of values, the erosion of standards, the erosion of morality, the, ero- the erosion of spiritual, the, er- the erosion of decency. I was becoming some type of a base animal, frightened, scared to death. In the last days of my drinking, I hope the last days of my drinking, the last days of my drinking up to the day at least, every morning, if I could find my car, if I could find my car, and I did a great deal of traveling, I would open the hood of the car because I knew that the mafia was bombing my car. And I looked for the bomb. Now, with my perception disorder, there could be 14 sticks of dynamite sitting on the air cleaner, and hell, I would have never seen it. I'd have just cranked it. But that's how paranoid I was. I was having conversations at my home. People were appearing on my doorstep, and I was answering bells that weren't ringing and talking to people on my front porch who weren't there. And then I would call them and say, what the hell did you come over to my place for? Why did you do I said, what are you talking about, Tom? We don't even know where you live. But I still was an alcoholic, total inability, total unwillingness to see the truth. And this erosion and this grinding and this in the despair that was setting in. And that was the frame of mind that I had when I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous not necessarily accepting that I was an alcoholic. Because, I, you know, I had no definition of what an alcoholic was. I only had people that I could point to that I thought were worse than, worse than I was. When I, came, when I came to that first meeting, I came because... Because my life was totally unmanageable. Because I had no place else to go. I couldn't go on like this. Physically, physically, possibly, I wasn't in the worst kind of shape. But I believe that I was ten days to two weeks away from a complete nervous breakdown. Because the things that the things that were happening to me, and the things that were going through my mind, were so bizarre, so tortured, so sick. My thinking was so convoluted. I, I was that I could never guarantee what was going to happen when I took that drink. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, my perception disorder kicked in right away, and I was disappointed almost immediately in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because somehow, for me, there was some type of cause and effect thing, since so many people said that your problem is that you're drinking, and if you didn't drink, you'd probably be a halfway decent guy. What, what suggested to me is if I don't drink, I'll be all right. And now I'm not drinking, and I felt terrible. And I, and I, and I, and I felt worse in some sense. Because I, I'm a very strong right-hand-oriented person, as if I had lost my right arm and I had to do everything left-handed. You see, the life I was leading was so unnatural, so strange and bizarre that it had become natural. And I was not equipped to rejoin a natural way of living. And the things that I had heard that, that, that most people could do instinctively and understood were things that we were foreign and things that frightened me and things that I, that, 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 that I, that I couldn't deal with. And it was so disappointing to me that the total inability or unwillingness to see the truth about myself hadn't changed because I, because I wasn't drinking alcohol. I, I wasn't drinking alcohol. And, and I didn't realize that, uh, that children cry in the night and companies have deadlines and people expect you to be responsible and you should be able to answer the telephone and you should be able to do those basic kinds of things that I hadn't been doing for some period of time and I was ill-equipped to do that thing and I was frightened and demoralized and concerned and so on and so on. And when I looked at the steps, all the steps didn't make any sense to me. I, I didn't understand the steps. I debated the steps. I was angry about the steps. I fought the steps. Because I carried all the baggage. 
all the baggage from the past, all the confusion. When I looked at step four, made a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves, I was back at seven, I was seven years old at what the church says is the age of reason. My wife thinks the age of reason happened somewhere around 38 years and it's been a temporary condition. (laughs) But at that point, I was standing in line ready to make my first confession, ready to ready to try to invent some sin. I, I was a failure at that point. My God, I'm seven years old and I haven't coveted my neighbor's wife. What the hell's wrong with me? If I was any good, I would have coveted something. My neighbor's wife, my neighbor's goods. And that, that to me was that examination of conscience. And the fifth step, admitting to God to ourselves and to another human being, was throwing myself into a confessional that I'd done over and over and over and over and over again. Ad nauseum, as the book says, and beat my breast and said, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was, and blurted out a litany of sins and discretions, whatever you want to call it. Whatever you want to call it. And I walked out of there and I felt a little better. A little better. Until I drank. And I might drink that afternoon. Or two days later, or three days later, or a week. So none of that stuff's going to work. Because I had tried that. Now, that's not what the book says. But that's where I was, the total inability, total unwillingness to see the truth about myself. Debating the program, not, not accepting the program. Comparing myself. Comparing myself. And life, and life went on. Now, with that frame of mind, and since this is a disease, if you accept the premise that the nature of the disease is the total inability or unwillingness to see the truth about yourself, how does anybody ever get sober then? I mean, how come... I can stand here today a reasonably happy, reasonably productive, I think reasonably healthy individual, thanking God for the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's a basic reason for it. I think, I think, it was for me at least. The thing that condemned me in my alcoholism saved me in my recovery. The total inability or unwillingness to see the truth about myself but where I could see your alcoholism and I could see what was happening to you. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I could not see that God was working in my life. I could not see that the program was working in my life in any way. I couldn't see that I was being changed in any way at all. But I couldn't deny what was happening to you. As I came there and sat, and we had it read today, the mission statement of Alcoholics Anonymous. Incredible mission statement. Written around 1950. The program was 15 years old. Had, had, had saved... Thousands of lives. Dr. Bob was dead. And Bill was frightened of his own mortality. Bill Wilson recognized. Bill Wilson of the majestic ego. Bill Wilson who wanted to have alcoholic hospitals and alcoholic clinics. And my God, it was going to be Wilson Incorporated and you name it. Bill Wilson was visited again, I believe, by his higher power, and he concluded that Alcoholics Anonymous could not be destroyed from without, but it could be destroyed from within. And now Bob was, Bob was gone. And Bill was wondering about this fellowship, what was going to happen to this fellowship. And it was called a fellowship, a fellowship, a fellowship. But it wasn't a fellowship. It was a very paternalistic organization because Bill and Bob were like gods. They were like gurus. They were being deified. And Akron was the Mecca. I came on the program in Akron, Ohio. I went into King School, the first meeting. I went to St. Thomas Hospital, not for, uh, not for uh, uh, inpatient treatment, but to get vitamin shots and so on and so forth. And if, you, and if you read the history, they were returning people to Akron and meeting them, in Akron, and now half of that was gone. And they began to ask, Bill asked and said, who are we? Why are we here on Sunday morning? 
Why do we come here and drink copious quantities of coffee? You know, why is that? Who are we? And so the mission statement began. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share. The first active verb in that statement that was the, that, that was the precursor of the 12 traditions that we had read, that was to change the dynamics of Alcoholics Anonymous forever and take it away from the paternalism and give it to the groups. It was a fellowship of men and women who share. It says, it says nothing about our drinking at that point in time. To share. That when you say to me, how are you, Tom? It is not a rhetorical statement. You want to know how I am for your recovery, and I must know how you are for my recovery. And in that must knowing and in that sharing, I saw what was happening to you. I saw you... I saw you buried loved ones with equanimity and serenity without blaming God or anyone else. I saw some of you who had been in bad marriages for years and years and years finally muster the courage to extricate yourselves from those things and place your hands in the hands of a loving God and go on with your lives. I saw others of you who were in marriages and who blamed the other one constantly and who were reconciled in the peace of Alcoholics Anonymous and the peace of God that blesses Alcoholics Anonymous. I saw some of you in dead-end jobs who shook yourselves like big collie dogs and rose and went on to something else, praying only for knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out. I saw some of you go back to school at 40 years old, and I said, nothing's happening in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Nothing was happening to me that I could see, but I could see what was happening to you. And in that sharing and in that giving was my recovery. Now, I want to talk... I want to talk for just a moment or two about one of the one of the major misconceptions that I had in the program and how this has become for me the turning point uh, in my recovery and hopefully it could be of some value to someone else because if I am to discharge my responsibility to Alcoholics Anonymous then I must share uh, at this podium this morning the steps the two steps that I was having the most problem with, possibly because of my Catholicism, possibly because of the family, possibly, I don't know, but were steps four and five. And I alluded earlier to my associating one with the examination of conscience and the other one the sacrament of penance, which is now called reconciliation and so on and so forth, and that hadn't worked for me. After I stopped critiquing the big book, after I began to be a dues-paying card-carrying member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and some of you may, some of you who are still awake may find this, may find this remarkable because obviously if you are awake, you've perceived I'm a motor mouth. And uh, I did not make a comment in Alcoholics Not. did not make a comment until I was sober over two years. I did not lead a meeting. I did not speak at a meeting until I was sober probably two and a half years. And when that young lady came up here at two or three days of sobriety and read the 12 steps that had an incredible impact upon me and I'll in the will for some time. I just couldn't do it. I wasn't honest enough. I could, after a meeting, I could talk to you if I really didn't have to look at you. Okay. Now, that's, now, that was my definition of sharing, so maybe, you know... <laughs> Obviously, I was having a problem with the second step at that point, too. Okay. 
And if we could talk in abstractions, if you could say to me, how are you? And I could say, I'm fine. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. I, you know, I'm really fine. In fact, I don't know why the hell you'd ask the question because mother says I was born fine. You know, it's just gotten better every goddamn year. <laughs> now that you brought it up, however, I would change a few things. I hate my wife. I'm definitely working for the wrong company. My height and weight are transposed. <laughs> the Catholic Church is driving me crazy. When I'm working, I want to be on vacation. When I'm on vacation, I want to be working. When I'm married, I want to be in love. When I'm in love, I'm in deep doo-doo trouble. But outside of that, everything is fine. By the way, I did tell you that I'm a jet pilot with a, uh, with a doctorate in uh, neurology, didn't I? Total and Billy, total and willing to see the truth about me. So talk in abstractions. Never let you see. Never let you see. I hate this expression, but I've never found a better one. And I do hate it. I truly hate it. But I've never found a better one. You people, collectively, the collective group conscience of Alcoholics Anonymous, loved me unconditionally. It didn't matter that I brought this petulance, this arrogance. It didn't matter that I brought this fear and the shame and, the, and, the, and this deceit. You still shared with me your experience, strength, and hope. And that's the only reason I'm here today. The only reason I'm here today is I began to vicariously see myself in you and what was happening to you. Okay, so on, these, on this fourth and fifth step, I'm now working the program as well as I can work the program. I'm speaking. Uh, I'm making coffee. I'm going to meetings. I'm going to a lot of meetings. Going to a lot of meetings. I'm probably going to five, six meetings a week. I'm very active in the program. I'm beginning to see. I'm processing things. I'm beginning to consider other alternatives. The contempt prior to investigation is beginning to dissipate to a degree. But I'm concerned with the fourth step. So my, I, I, I took the fifth step the first time on New Year's Eve with a Catholic priest in a confessional. I didn't know any other thing to do. Besides, it was rather dramatic, I thought. Rather dramatic. And so at about 11.45 p.m., I threw myself into this confessional and said, Father, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we have two steps, the fourth and fifth step. He said, I'm familiar with the program. So I admitted to God, to myself, and that human being, the exact nature of my wrongs, uh, as well as I could at that point. And I left there and I felt, I felt better. I did feel better. I felt better. Wilson says, returning home, we take the book down from the shelf, and we ask ourselves, have we, have we put the bricks in place? Is the mortar in place? Have we built, have we built a, a road from which we can travel, and so on and so forth? And there were some cracks in my mortar, and the bricks didn't fit, just quite the way they would. I felt better. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, program. The next time was at a, was an AA retreat, and there was a recovering alcoholic priest there. And so I once again did this. Okay. And I felt better. But I didn't get that cathartic release. I didn't get that overwhelming spiritual presence that I was looking for. And then God, with his incredible sense of humor, transferred me to California. I went out to California. My company, and by the way, every company that I've ever worked for, knows that I'm alcoholic, knows that I'm a recovering member of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's important. It's important for me that they know that. I think it's important for them that they know that, for whatever that's worth. 
When I went to California, obviously my company had a very great sense of humor because they put me in a motel out there that had uh, two swimming pools, three bars, and about four hookers working the, uh, working the hotel. With my track record, I shouldn't have made it past noon, you know. <laughs> but I'm out there by myself because my wife has stayed back in Ohio with the children. We're trying to sell the house. And I was out in California for about seven months all by myself. When I got there, I found out that you can make a geographical cure in, in, or a tour uh, change in, in sobriety. I got out there, and some of the things that I was running from in Ohio weren't in Ohio. They were in town. And I got out there, okay. But I did, but I was grounded well enough in the program that the first night I got there, I called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went to my first meeting, and they said, is there anyone new from out of town? And I stood up, I said, my name's Tom, and I'm an alcoholic from Akron. And everybody came forward, and it was deja vu, if you will. I was back at my first meeting, and I was back in the, the sharing and the love and, the, and so on and so forth. And I'm by myself out there. And, and so I'm going to meetings every night of the week. And we had happened at that meeting. What was happened, we had read at this meeting, the 12 Steps. As I said, they read the 12 traditions, they read the 12 steps at every meeting. And I heard, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrong. And the word that, the word that galvanized it was nature of our wrong. Nature of our wrong. The exact nature of our wrong. I said, I haven't done that. I haven't done that. What I did, I have a laundry list. I'm seven years old. I'm back in the confessional. And, I'm, and what I'm talking about is the deed. I'm not talking about the nature. There was everything in my inventory except Tom. There was no Tom in my inventory. Now, that's not the way Bill wrote it. If you look at Bill's ultra-simplistic, beautiful, wonderful treatise on the fourth and fifth step that was written in 1938 published in 1939 and is used by every treatment facility in the world without any change, without any need to change even the punctuation. Bill did it to be sure that we talked about the nature, but I didn't talk about the nature. And I knew I had to do that. I knew I had to do that. And so I began to take that inventory just the way Bill suggested. And I found, or God found for me, a recovering priest in the program, many years my junior in sobriety, many years my junior in age, not that it's relevant. And I told him what I was doing, and he said, when you're ready, come down and see me. And he was attached to the University of California at Irvine, and I went down there. And now I had pondered very carefully and very soulfully the nature of my wrongs, and I admitted to God, to myself, that human being, the exact nature of my... And it was like a great weight was lifting. It was like I could sense the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the infusion of God as I understood God. The room was cleaner and brighter. The light was, the light was wonderful. And I was close to tears. And I said to him, Tom, without any question, this is the most wonderful day of my life. And for the first time, I have some comprehension of the biblical injunction that the truth will set me free. Because I feel free and I feel whole and I feel clean. But Tom, I've been sober long enough that I know this won't happen because I won't continue because I have a disease where the mind rationalizes a way to take back the problem. Let me tell you that I understand something about this program, that I have a character defect behind me, and it's behind me, and that's where it's going to bite me the next day if I think that I've got this thing under control. So I said, so, I said Tom, give me something that I can take from him without a moment's hesitation. He said, pray for a willingness to understand the powerlessness in all areas of your life. And I wrote it down like a drowning man. 
pray for a willingness to understand the powerlessness in all areas of your life. And I said, oh my God, Tom. I said, you know, I've had a cathartic release. You know, I'm feeling better than ever. And you're saying to me, pray for a willingness to understand the powerlessness. And he just smiled. I said, I don't understand that. He said, you will. Take it with you. And I took it with me. It, it remains to this day attached to that, all that written fourth, fourth step inventory, if you will. And it finally began to occur to me. And I found the answer to that someplace between California and Ohio being transferred back and getting into the 12 and 12 and seeing that Bill Wilson had talked about the sixth step and Bill identified the sixth step as the step that separated the men from the boys. Now, girls, don't be offended. Bill was not a chauvinist. There just weren't a hell of a lot of girls around in, 19, uh, in 1938. And I said, how can become entirely willing to have God remove these defects of character compared to the fourth and fifth steps? How can that possibly compare to that? And then I finally realized what Father Tom had told me and what Bill was trying to tell me and what God was trying to work in my life and what the program was trying to say to me. That the nature of this disease where the mind rationalizes a way to take back the problem, that the first five steps are designed to get rid of that wreckage of the past that so confuses and tortures us and so frightens us, those things that we look and say, oh my God, how could that have happened? How could that have happened? How could I have become this? How could I have done that? How could I have thought like this? How many have I failed? And, they, and so that we don't spend an inordinate amount of time in the past, those first five steps are designed to get rid of that forever. Martin Vincent Peale used to talk about standing on the back of a moving boat and dropping it in the water dropping our disappointments and sins indiscretions in the water and let the boat pull away from it. Great, wonderful, wholesome thing. But the alcoholic mind says, ah, that's behind me now. Now I can run my own life. I know I have knowledge. <laughs> knowledge. Our big book doesn't say lack of knowledge was our problem. It says lack of power was our problem. And he said, pray for a willingness to understand the power. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact, praying only for knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out. Because when my disease resurfaces and I begin to rationalize a way to take back a problem, I'm not taking back generally anger or resentment or self-pity or lust or arrogance. Those things are all a part of my life. That's not what I take back. What I begin to do is I begin to deify and pedestalize other things. Other things become my God. An automobile, a job, a woman, a vacation. Something that I begin to sense has more power or allow more power over that. Isn't it interesting that the biographer, Wilson's biographer, who was given the license to go in and examine all the writings that Bill had in New York, when he wrote his book, what did he entitle it? Not God. That the acceptance of alcoholic recovery is not that it is a, not that it is a group therapy program. It is, I mean, not that it is a self-help program. It is not a self-help program. We admit that we were powerless. And that the power comes and is appropriated from this God that we understand God. And I finally begin to understand that God is not an abstraction. He's not a God of the planets. He's not a God of the universe. He's a God of me. He lives within me. He is here for me to appropriate. But that total inability, unwillingness to see the truth about myself will lead me back to some other false God. And the only place that I'm secure is when I'm here in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous 
where we share our experience, strength, and hope with one another. God bless you.